While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Santa Claus cookie thing when you're growing. We, oh, up. did we, they leave? Did they eat all the cookies or did they like take a bite out? And, ate like, all the cookies. Leave? They ate all the cookies because our Santa Claus would come and he would take a bite out and then leave. Like, a like he's in a rush. Like he's got to. Yeah, like he like he wanted to let us know that he cared enough to to eat them, but he like Rudolph, Rudolph's on the roof. He's like beep beep, big man. I mean, let's I get go. It. Like if you're gonna go around the whole the whole world. <laughs> You, you can't be eating everyone's like cookies, you, dog. You, you got to keep it light. <laughs> we used to do a thing where, and I think I might keep this, I might do this with my kids if I have the if I have the right house for it. Um, if you have kids. My future kids, <laughs> the kids I have now, I don't have any of those. Um, Hope not. Where we, we had a two-story house, and you weren't allowed to go downstairs until a parent went down to make sure that Santa, A, had been there. And B was not still there. <laughs> so we all would wait at the top of the stairs and be like, oh, God, Santa down there. And then he never was. I'm was still trying fun. to figure out how how much and how often I'm going to lie to my children in the event that I have them. That like, Santa I don't, I don't... one is big, dude. That Santa yeah, I mean, the, the Santa one. myth is the one that I think every parent comes up with. But they're they're also like the smaller more like utilitarian just like i'll tell you when you're older lies like anything about where babies come from you have the minor um holiday deities like the easter bunny and the tooth fairy the minor holiday deities yeah like they're not <laughs> the <laughs> like the i just like the word deities sorry i'm getting hung up on calling the tooth fairy a deity she's the dental deity yeah like she's the she's what comes when you when on your baby teeth falls is it we, do you remember we uh, hopefully we'll start this podcast soon do you remember we'll see how much of this makes it into this yeah do you remember <laughs> when you found out it was that, not a finding out thing it was just like one day i realized I, yeah i don't the, know man the impossibility at the heart of the santa claus myth I don't know when I found out. I know I have a distinct memory of a time when I wrote a letter, put it in the fireplace. No, it was it wasn't lit fireplace. <laughs> I just put it in the you fireplace. Put it in an unlit fire. Well, it has to be a lit fireplace, or he's not gonna get it. No, I put it there in the unlit fireplace, and then it was gone. I can't imagine that someone I was related to took the letter. <laughs> I can't have been what happened. But, yeah, I don't remember the distinct moment. Because, like, a, a year is a long time when you're a kid. Yes. And so, I don't know. Like, I just, it, it, there wasn't some discovery where I, like, came down and, oh, it was my dad the whole time. Like, I didn't have – there's no traumatic memory oh, associated Oh, yeah, you found out. You found out in like, the off season. It wasn't even finding out. It was just, like, one year. And I don't even remember when it happened. It was so, like, not big of a deal. And it was – and maybe it was because – I had younger siblings, so, so you I could kind of had to. I kind of had to just keep a lid on it. You had suspicions, but you couldn't voice them. Yeah, like yeah. I, I just, like one year Santa was a thing, and I mean my 
family still, I think. Is there some vestigial Does Santa some in Santa your Christmas? Presents, yeah. yeah, we do. We do. We do some Santa presents too. My parents even like wrap it in different paper than they use for the rest of the presents. Like they're pretty thorough. About no, it. I, it's usually I just see a gift with uh, my sister's writing in all caps that just says Santa from Santa. Now, is, are your Santa gifts like big ones or like usually? Yeah, gifts? some of them are okay. usually bigger gifts or or at least gifts that weren't asked for i think usually is the is the thing it's usually a bigger but like thoughtful gift so is your ipad a santa gift i don't know if my ipad was a santa gift see that's Um, the thing is you don't like i don't remember i don't think about the tooth fairy i think about like waking up and there was money under my pillow because when you're a kid like there are not that many opportunities to get money money. (laughs) especially especially if you don't have an allowance like we never had an allowance i never had an allowance either I think that says something more about I don't know, it's weird. As I get older I I the stories about my childhood I remember take on this new dimension and I realize like we didn't have a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think we did either. So there's like a, a bummer element to it, but also like I, I appreciate <laughs> the sacrifices that my family made a little more. I'm That's, bringing this yeah. down. I'm bringing yeah. the podcast. Well down. let's well let's get the podcast going. Try and bring us back up. <laughs> Uh, welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And each week we take a book that one of us should have read by now and we talk about it on air. We also clearly talk about other things. Uh, Andrew, what did you read this week? Uh, the book I read this week is uh, Eddie and the Cruisers by P.F. Kluge. And, uh, um, okay. This is also, you may know it from the book and you may also know it from the movie of the same name or the much worse sequel to that movie. <laughs> I forgot there was a sequel. Have you it's seen the movie? Eddie and, I've not seen the movie, and I've not seen Eddie and the Cruisers 2, Eddie Lives. It should have been called Eddie and the Toosers. If it had come out now, it would have been called Eddie and the Toosers. <laughs> Fun for the whole family. <laughs> I like that Tom Berenger, I was looking it up, Tom Berenger is in Eddie and the Cruisers. I don't, he, I don't he really? know who he plays. He's, <laughs> uh, I like him. Oh, oh, he's the... I'm looking at the Wikipedia page now. He's apparently the main, the like protagonist. All right. Yeah. Well, we'll figure out who that is soon enough. Uh, but let's talk about P.F. Kluger first, Andrew. Um, what you, What can you, you tell me I, about him? Some of our listeners, I think, will have a unique perspective on P.F. Kluger because he is currently and was at the time that we went there, the writer in residence at Kenyon College, which is the in the English place. department. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And the place that that's the place that you and I went for undergrad. Like a lot of our friends went there for undergrad and you and I each had him in a class. I don't know that everybody had him in a class, but he would occasionally give speeches and he was kind of a campus fixture. The curmudgeon his, in residence, with his, perhaps. With his cigars and his, yeah, his uh, homespun well, and pessimistic he attended wisdom. Kenyon. He attended Kenyon, which yeah, I think he gave attended him... Kenyon and he was a class of 1964, which is for people who are not up on their their small Ohio liberal arts history was back when Kenyon was still an all-male school. By only like five years, right? Yeah, like not not by a lot, but that, um. I mean, that comes up in this in this book. So. Oh, oh, hooray. Yeah. So I would, like that, those are, those are a couple of the big things about P.F. Kluger. The other, you know, he went to and then later came back to the college. It, it's a very small, like, I think the enrollment is still around, like, sixteen or 1,700 yeah. students total, like, across all four classes. Um, For those went, of you he, listening he attended, who, who yeah. appreciate Josh Radner from How I Met Your Mother, 
He made a or, small or just or don't appreciate, but know or, about or him. aware. <laughs> Fair or are aware of him. Uh, he made a film called Liberal Arts, which was, I guess, like took place at a faux Kenyan and was filmed at the real Kenyan. Yeah. Um, so it's 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 a college of some minor renown, I suppose. Yeah, like it, it gets brought up in these like most beautiful campus and um, like uh, Princeton Review sites. Like it, it, it's up there for whatever reason. For it's, for a variety of like independent reasons, it seems. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, like it's 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 not. My feelings about Kenyon don't really have a lot to do with Kenyon. They have more to do. With uh, how I feel about higher education, you can listen to our "Don't Go Back to School" episode <laughs> for more of those. But um, fair enough. Um, but what yeah, is the like other he big he, thing about he Ken, went uh, to he he attended and then later came back and taught at Kenyon, and then um, he's from New Jersey originally, which is where mm-hmm. I currently live. And he also he spent a few years in the Peace Corps in Micronesia, sixty-seven to sixty-nine, I believe. Yes, and um, he also. Travels pretty regularly. Um, like one of his, um, one of his books, uh, took place in, I'm trying to find. If was that was Biggest Micro- Elvis? Yeah, it was Biggest Elvis. I'm trying to find if it took place in Micronesia or if it was just. Well, cause he did a lot of, Kluge did a lot of writing for, uh, National Geographic Traveler. In addition yeah. to, I think, uh, Life magazine is where mm. his article, an article he wrote got turned into the movie Dog Day Afternoon. Yeah. Um, so he's done a lot of travel writing in addition to some other nonfiction essay writing. Yeah. Biggest Elvis was in the Philippines. Okay. So. All right. Yeah. But um, we, I, I mean, I bring up all this stuff about his background because I've read, I mean, I think more than any other author that I've read for this podcast. And I don't know if that's true for you, Craig. I know you've written, you've read some. Some things that are by people whose other works you admire and you're just kind of digging deeper into their catalog. Yeah, yeah, I've yeah, read, yeah. um, I've read a few P.F. Kluge books. I've read Biggest Elvis. I've read, um, Final Exam, which is another one of his, um, and a few of his more recent books. And, um, the thing about his writing is that you have a lot of these kind of semi autobiographical elements crop up all the time. Like his, his protagonists are often like they often attended or they are professors at a small liberal arts college, which usually goes unnamed, but usually he'll name drop like a <laughs> hall or something or like a building or yeah. even like the name of a room. And you'll know like what he's talking about. Like if there's, there's always Kenyan, that. Yeah. yeah. There's always that, that Kenyan shout out in every one of his books. Okay. And, um, and yeah, like some of his, some of his other works, not, not this one particularly but some of his others have to do with his his like traveling and and some of that other stuff but yeah you get these you get these elements that that repeat and if you know anything about him like you you realize the extent to which he's kind of it's almost like a self-insertion kind of thing do you feel it's like that as opposed to a self-examination kind of thing or is he really just kind of he has come up with a premise for a book and then uses his kind of worldview as the frame as the starting point for the main character you i think you're it- asking me a couple different questions <laughs> sorry 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 i think he i think he often does take his frame of reference and the perspective that he knows and like his life and he uses it to he uses it as a starting point for his main character okay. a lot of the time All now right. in, in in terms of 
whether that's self-insertion or self-examination, that's a little that's a little murkier. I I I think sometimes. Um, and it's been a little while since I've read Biggest Elvis, but it's it's maybe of all the books of his that I've read the most removed from the his stuff that he normally writes. Yeah. Like like often like um, Gone Tomorrow is one of his. Um, Final Exam is one of his. Alma Mater is, it's not a novel, it's a nonfiction work that's actually about Kenyon. But right. Biggest Elvis is one of the ones that gets the furthest away from that campus. But even even then, there's a character in there who's who's a writing professor at a small liberal arts college in Ohio, and he has a bunch of unflattering things to say about the kids today and, and the <laughs> stuff that they write. <laughs> well, and so you seem to say this, how do you feel about this now you've already noticed it right do you find it a little tiring at this point was was it ever fresh i don't find it tiring i find it i find that it takes me out of the work okay oh fair and that's and 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 there's and it's not it's not just that because i I mean if you're coming at his work and you've never attended kenyan you've never heard of kenyan like maybe you wouldn't even notice that um, the other, the other thing that he, the th- the thing about his writing, and I guess we'll we'll get to the book itself at some point soon. But <laughs> the other thing about his writing is he his like he's like fantastic at evoking a mood or describing a place. I was going to even ask describing about like that. the yeah. describing like the mood of a place or the mood of a crowd or the just the sense of of somewhere i wonder if that comes from his journal his journalism background you know what i mean i mean i think that i mean i think he writes what he knows in that in that situation but like he he's really good at that but his dialogue he's got a very strong voice like a very strong perspective and often i mean every every character that he writes and I've, you know, I've read enough of his, I've read like a good half dozen of his novels at this point. Like every character who he writes kind of sounds, they have the same way of speaking. They have the same perspective on the world. And they all, they're all kind of, I don't know. You, you know, that writing that's kind of aware that it's writing and it's like the dialogue that's kind of too witty by half and nobody actually talks like that. Like it's a, it's a hard line to, well, because Draw, sometimes because that is obviously successful you, satire, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, like, obviously, if you're watching a movie or a TV show or reading a book or something, you want you don't always want the people to talk like people talk because sometimes people are boring and sometimes people say things that are not like they don't drive the plot forward and they are of no importance and it's yes. not important to know exactly what they say. Like in, in Kluge's books, that's not the problem. But the, the problem is that they all sound the same. They're all like these jaded people who've. I don't know. Maybe they've seen too much. Maybe they just think they've seen too much. <laughs> um, they're all they're all like very very like terse and clever <laughs> with their with their dialogue. And and he he has at least I think he has he has trouble writing characters that don't just sound like him or they don't just all sound like the same character. Now, do you think? Do you hear his voice when you read the book? I do. Because okay. I've met him, but see, I wonder if that I'm trying. I mean, I'm trying to take a step back and describe things that I've noticed that I think people who had never met him would also know would also notice. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, because I mean, it 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 goes 
because they're just yeah they're just those common threads in every book that he writes that like he projects this very and you and i were talking about this in the pre-show like he he projects this very writerly like scholarly image but what he ends up writing ultimately are um you know entertaining and 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 you know they're page turners obviously but um he often ends up writing books that have so many similarities that they're, they're like those, I don't know, they're, it's like a mystery novel and you buy a, a book with that guy's name on the cover and you know pretty much what you're getting. And it's not bad, but it's also predictable to to a degree. On one end of the spectrum, there is the, and I, I don't remember who I was talking to about this, the idea that in like romance novels on certain pages of of a maybe 300 page novel certain amounts of sex are supposed to occur have you ever heard that that like on page 40 there should be something and then on page 80 there should be something like this is a thing i haven't heard that specifically but i mean that does i mean it does actually come up in kluga's books as there's there's normally some kind of tryst with somebody um it's not always a younger woman but it's often a younger woman okay um and and yeah, like it it doesn't. It feels it vaguely up, Woody Allen esque. Does that make sense? It did, okay. Explain what you mean. Because I'm I'm not as familiar with his. Well, and I'm, oeuvre, I'm I will also admit to oeuvre. not being too familiar with Woody Allen's oeuvre. Um, <laughs> but in a lot in many Woody Allen films, there is that there is a character played by Woody Allen, and they all are very similar. Yes. And there's a there's a nebbish quality, and there's a self deprecating quality. And it is it is just him working out his stuff, you know. But like, how often is that character the main character of the? Uh, of the... I think it varies. I think yeah. I don't. I couldn't speak. I would actually love it if someone wanted to email us and talk about this. Talk about Woody Allen. <laughs> um, check out later in the show when we tell you where to email us. Um, but I, I wonder if that's if there's something similar there that's worth thinking about. I don't know. All right, let's talk about this book in particular because I feel like okay. it'll be easier to talk about this type of stuff. As you're breaking down, yeah, and we'll Eddie we'll get back to the the repeated themes and things um, as we go. But okay, so Eddie and the Cruisers is it's a band. Basically. Okay, like cool. There's, there's this guy Eddie Wilson and his band, the Parkway Cruisers, and they had a a summer or like a year where they were going up and down the Jersey Shore and playing all these shows, and people liked them, and they recorded one album. And then Eddie dies in a car crash. Okay. And um, and the band kind of goes their separate ways. Um, so so about half the book is told as a flashback, you know, back to those times, and the other half is um, is told from the perspective of Frank Ridgeway, who is also called Word Man, and he's called Word Man because he comes up with the lyrics to most of their songs. And he's so he's kind not of a, in the band. He is in the band, but he's sort of an outsider. Like the rest of them are kind of, kind of shore people. And what they, does he play in the band? Um, he plays the guitar, but not well. Like he, he, he's there because he Eddie, writes Eddie, the words. Yeah, Eddie takes notice of his his lyrical abilities. Like he went to this this unnamed Ohio liberal arts college for a year. He dropped out, and then he was like working a bar because his parents were mad at him because he didn't like finish college. Oh, word man did. Yeah, and so Wordman is kind of a kind of an outsider in this situation, but Eddie like takes a shine to what's Wordman's real he, name again? Uh, Frank 
Frank Ridgway. Does he refer to himself as Wordman? It's a nickname that is bestowed upon him, and then he... I don't know. Like, have you ever... I feel like nicknames don't stick to me, but you have you ever had somebody try to give you a nickname? I've had plenty of people try to give me nicknames. But did you, like, take to any of them? Did you, like, self-identify with Um, any of those nicknames? I don't... I, like think about think about our friend Johnny, who some people call Johnny Rocket because yes, of, he is a, he I is a burger. Place. Yes, he and he's ex- like he's okay with that nickname. Yes, um, he doesn't. I don't think he goes by that anymore in his professional life. But at least while we were in college, he was no, like he's no, no, fine no. with it. Um, I there were a couple people in college who called me Skippy. Uh, yeah, For a period yeah. of time, I believe it was because they didn't actually know my name, and okay. that was a name. I, of a character or a nickname of a character I was uh, portraying maybe it's, just play. Their, maybe it's just their favorite peanut butter. You know, yeah. Nope, they didn't call me Jif. Nobody's favorite peanut butter is Skippy. That's a ridiculous what is your pe- What is your favorite peanut butter? Well, choosy moms choose Jif, obviously. Are you a choosy mom? I am a choosy mom. Choosy mom. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't... <sighs> people in high school, I had to kind of endure people giving me nicknames based off my last name being a gerund slash present ah, participle yeah, yeah. had a lot Crim- of that going kidding. on um anyway my like yeah, I, i've never do? people that have not tried to give me that many nicknames and in the rare events when they have i've not like encouraged it <laughs> you would not appreciate it if i started calling you hambone mm, i would ask why i would wonder why Cunningham. but i would not hambone oh, oh that's not bad Anyway, don't right. call me Hambone. <laughs> Let's try it out. Let's see how it goes. Um. <laughs> anyway, he, so he adopts Wordman. People call him Wordman, and he kind of takes to it. And All right. It, it's people call him Wordman more often than they call him Frank or Ridgeway or whatever. Is the novel in the first person? Um. It's all. It's all from Frank's perspective. And so close yes, third person. It is. It is first person. Oh, it's first person. Okay. Yeah, and it's it's. Toward the end, you find out that it's like him. He's basically writing this book and he's leaving it to posterity. Oh, snap. Okay. Yeah, right. So so some of it takes place in the past, in the 50s, when 50s. Eddie and the Cruisers was a thing and they were they were big and they were they so recorded they were this one album. What kind of music were they playing? It was rock. Rock music. So like pre, Pre-Beatles rock. elvis rock. Ish, yeah. All right. Ish. All right. Um, and then the other half of it takes place 20, play, 20 years later. When um, one of their songs, like there, there's some popular group that like covers it, and it okay, reignites cool. interest in the in the group and in their songs. And so, some some reporter who claims to be from the Rolling Stone but ends up being a bit of a red herring comes and wants to talk to. I'm, we're just gonna call him Wordman for, uh, for yeah, Wordman. This is Frankie like, Wordman. Frankie Frankie Wordman Ridgeway. Uh, he he comes to find Wordman to talk to him about about the band and it it becomes clear after Wordman goes to talk to like he goes to talk to the band's old manager and he starts to go around and find the other band members and find out what they're up to but it comes out that Eddie spent this month up in a recording studio without the other band members doing something very secretive and the like, the legend goes that he recorded another album's worth of material, basically. And we have to find it. 
And now the band has gotten big again. Like people really want to find that material okay. and release it. it all right. And so it starts out. It starts out being. I don't know, kind of just a story about this band, and then it becomes a a whodunit kind of mystery because there's somebody who's like calling everybody on the phone, and there's somebody who's like impersonating Eddie, and there's somebody I don't know, like, like an Andy Kaufman kind of thing, like a I'm I'm not. I'm not that familiar with Andy Kaufman. I don't want to. Man, I'm just so going to keep dropping an Canadian, the Canadians, <laughs> comedians <laughs> that you're not aware of. <laughs> Jerry Seinfeld's my favorite stand-up Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go see a stand-up Canada later. Let's go to a stand-up Canada show. It's my favorite. Okay. Yeah. No. Uh, a Canada open mic. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> um, yeah. So it's a whodunit. So that's that's like that's the thrust of it. Okay. Is it? I don't know. People are trying to find this thing out, and and it like throughout the rest of the book, like the rest of the book is kind of some of it is about getting old, and some of it is about you know what could have been or like the decisions that we make that lead to the lives that we have okay some of some of it is about i mean some of it's kind of a love letter to new jersey which i guess i could talk about a little bit yeah what having lived here for for like two and a half years at that at this point i like kind of get it a little bit what do you get about it because like it it acknowledges that new jersey is kind of a crap hole a lot of the time like it spends <laughs> i wish i could use saltier language because crap hole is not to do it justice but but you know the the he you know he spends time on the turnpike he spends time on like the pulaski skyway um he talks about camden he talks about newark great and even though in in the this book was written i think in 1980 i want to say um it's not you know it's not a recent novel no um it's his first big novel right um he'd written a couple previous to this he had written i think um macarthur's ghost may have been before this um the day i die is another one no macarthur's ghost was after this the day i die was i think his first one okay um but it's definitely one of his earlier books but anyway he um yeah, like he he talks about Camden, he talks about Newark, and and in the 1980s, even more than now, like those cities were were very down on their luck. And it's not, I mean, it's not like Newark or Camden are very nice right now, but so it was it was like that the same urban decay that was kind of prevalent in New York at that time had spread out to the uh, to the New Jersey cities adjacent to it. Yeah, yeah, I guess, and. Um, hmm. So a lot of the book spends spends time talking about just how polluted and terrible New Jersey is. And I get it because I'm friends with a lot of New Yorkers and they give me crap about living in New Jersey <laughs> all the time. Because I'm in I'm in Jersey City now, which if you're if you're looking at like midtown Manhattan, if you're ta- if you're talking about the island and you're looking at it from like from on high, like there's Manhattan wait bird's in the eye view. Do you mean yeah, like bird's eye view? <laughs> you're like if you're a bird or an angel or something, and you're looking high. down. There's you're just, you're looking at Google Maps. There's Manhattan in the middle, and then Brooklyn is to the right, 
Yeah. And Jersey City is to the left. And they're like equidistant. It, it takes me literally 25 minutes to get into Midtown Manhattan. Okay. On a bad day. N- yeah. But it's if not you bad talk by to public someone, yeah. if you talked about Jersey City to someone who lived in Brooklyn, they would pretend like you lived on Mars. <laughs> like it was just <laughs> something about crossing that state line is so unbelievable to people. How do you even live there? Yeah. You don't have bespoke garbage bags? What are you doing? <laughs> Just throwing words together. You mean you still use diapers on your children? Why aren't why aren't you just letting them poop in bowls? <laughs> <laughs> and then using them to fertilize the garden that you're growing on your fire escape. <laughs> no, like I I when he describes Jersey and when he talks about Jersey, like New Jersey is your dumb, nerdy little brother who yes. you don't really like, but you're allowed to make fun of him and other people aren't allowed to make fun of him. Okay. Yeah. I remember you telling me about that when you were you were making the move to Jersey City and you were like, I get it. It's my place now. It's my yeah, home. Yeah. Like, I, this, is, this is what happened. It's my dumb. This is, this is what has happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm here now and I will do the best. You were enjoying that part of the book? Yeah, because I, I get it. Like a lot of the, like I remember watching TV shows and reading books that were kind of set in New York back when we lived in Ohio and just kind of being disconnected from it and not really understanding anything about the place. And so it's kind of cool to know enough about the environs now to to know the differences between the different boroughs and the different neighborhoods. Yeah. And like yeah. It, it adds a different dimension. Yeah, the class. To that kind of stuff. So I would I would have read this and been like, oh, uh, New Jersey, mm-hmm. oh, don't roll your window down or you'll <laughs> die. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, it makes sense. The class that I took of Kluge's, uh my freshman year at Kenyon was a, no- a a class I think he still teaches called the American Novel 1950s to the Present. We read a Philip. We read two Philip Roth books, um, Portnoy's Complaint and American Pastoral. And if I recall correctly, American or American pastoral, maybe. Uh, I don't remember if there's an E <laughs> on the end of it or not. Just keep uh, on. Keep it on. takes place in Jersey, and it is it is about that urban decay. And it is about kind of like industry leaving that state <clears throat> yeah. and the types of industries that were there to kind of feed the two major cities on either end of New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like in, in this book, it talks about how Newark is to New York as Camden is to is to Philadelphia. And man, just Trenton, just the world takes. Trenton makes <laughs> and the world takes. Yeah, for for those of you who do not live in this geographical area, when you are leaving Trenton to go to Trenton is the southmost stop on the um the Northeast Corridor NJ Transit line. That's like the main um regional train line that runs from philadelphia to new york well or almost to philadelphia yeah and as you were as you were leaving trenton to go to philadelphia going over the river you you pass this bridge and on it in this like this like 50s it's so bioshock looking great art deco i love it (laughs) it just says trenton makes the world takes i love it i love it so so much weird and passive aggressive because what just what does Trenton make? Well, and I here's the thing. I <laughs> what is the here's the thing. Fun? I think when that whenever that slogan was probably first put together, it was real. There was a lot of pride, right? It was like we made all this stuff. 
in the world we're like a, it. like a steel town i just assume that every every major city in america was just a steel, steel town <laughs> but i don't know i don't know why they chose the verb takes cuz it does feel really passive aggressive i mean i think it's cuz it rhymes yeah but it, it was like Trenton makes the world purchases or something. Or, yeah, like that. or the world benefits or something. <laughs> but now it feels very passive aggressive because Trenton is is not anything wonderful right now. And no, like it's not Camden, but no, it's also not as great. an economic center. <laughs> it, it's not like a thriving economic center, and so it feels very like wham. <laughs> yeah, I mean, most stuff. places in Jersey are just places that you traveled through on your way to other places. Yeah. I totally, I mean, I acknowledge that as a resident of New Jersey. Speak, but. all right, back, getting a little bit back to the novel, just a little bit. Um, speaking yeah. of his, you were talking a lot about his gifts of sense of place. Um, what, why does part of this novel take place in Micronesia? And how does none, that? None of this, none of this wait, novel takes place in Micronesia. Is that just? I was talking about, I was talking about. Biggest, biggest Elvis? Elvis? Yeah, yeah. Does none literally none of this novel takes place in Micronesia? No, like he's in Florida very briefly, but most of it's Jersey. So Florida's kind of like Micronesia, is what you're saying? No, <laughs> he's in. I mean, they they do this show in Ohio at at the Not Kenyan School. Oh, was it at the Horn Gallery? <laughs> where where all the no, that's at Pierce Hall. Of course it is. And um, I can't tell. I can't tell if this was like a, a publisher error. Or if it was something that he did to be like cute, but Pierce Hall, he spelled it wrong. Kenyon is spelled P E I R C E, and in this book, it's P I E R C E. Maybe that's what the band did to your ears. I don't know. I mean, by 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 the account that is given in this book, that is a very that was a good show. But that was when Eddie and the Cruisers, the band, figured out that Wordman was like an other, and that he wasn't one of them. Like he was just like slumming with them. Okay. Because they were all like Jersey people and he was some refined like dropout from some mid Ohio finishing school. So what is his arc in this in this novel? What happens to the word man? He starts out I mean and I say starts out meaning that, you know, when when this music catches up to him. Like he's okay. in his late he's in his late thirties, he's teaching at a school, he is um he has a wife and two kids who you see like twice. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> because their marriage is, I guess, falling apart. I don't like that. That's one of the. Is he sad about looser, his life? He is a little sad about right. his life because everybody who he meets, he gets a sense that they're, they're weighing him and they are coming away disappointed because oh, I think God. he, he, they, um, they had some idea about him being like, quote unquote better than them or like destined for bigger things because he was a writer and he was like a little more educated and they they all assumed he would be out like maybe writing in Hollywood under a pseudonym or they would have he would have like these novels that he had written and he hadn't really done any of it like he just kind of his life's been puttering and he like settled down and he found a wife and he has a job he's not and this is all after Eddie died yeah yeah, okay This is in the twenty years between yeah. when Eddie died and the. the Makes me want to give Kluga a big hug. Yeah, like a lot of his a lot of his books are about. Well, like let let's let's step back and and talk about the repeating elements in his books. Like you've got you've got the repeating locations, you've got the repeating character types. New Jersey. Um, yeah, yeah, like Philippines. New Jersey, the Philippines, the English professor who 
has seen it all. Okay. Um, like in this book, you've got that the album is called Leaves of Grass after the Walt Whitman. Of course, it is book. And um, good job, Word Man. It's like it's like this mythical work that everybody assumes is going to be great because because I guess what Eddie was trying to do was like like there are some racial elements in this book, and I don't I'm uncomfortable talking about them because I don't I don't fully understand what you know the 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 racial situation in 1950s New Jersey the the implication is that Newark and Camden are both very much like poor black decaying cities okay um but what Eddie wants to do is take white music and black music which I guess, you know, according to the book, up to that point, had not, like, crossed over that much. And That's what was make... going on in the 50s. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, he wanted to take something and make... Like, they play, they play this show in um, in Newark, and, like, they do okay, and they don't get booed off the stage, but they also don't, like, get the applause and the attention that they're used to. And so Eddie gets it in his head that, like, there's this audience that he can't break through to, and he wants to break through to them. Okay. And so what he does when he's up in this recording studio for a month is he goes and he tries to get together a bunch of, you know, black and white musicians. Like it's implied that Buddy Holly is up there. Like there there are some interesting. There are some like big capital B, capital N big names that come and try and help him make this album. And that's like that's what they're looking for. And so there's this this mythical album and you never hear it. And at the, by the end of the book, it turns out that it was, you know, it didn't work and the tapes were erased and you never actually get to, to like hear the quote unquote, hear the album or like see its effect for, like, on someone. Yeah. 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 Um, there's another book, a more recent one, um, Gone Tomorrow, which I think he wrote in 2008. Okay. Where a uh, longtime writer in residence at a small Ohio liberal Stop arts Stop me if you've heard this before. Wrote a really famous book. Okay. Uh, like 30 years before. Uh-huh. And then didn't publish anything. Okay. After that. And the story went that, you know, he and, and that character dies. And the story went that for 30 years he'd been working on another book called The Beast. And, like, nobody knows if it existed and nobody knows if it's going to be any good. Interesting. And so there is another younger writer at the same institution who has named his literary, you know, executor and uh, has to uncover the mystery behind this book. Hmm. So can you draw can you draw the parallels between these these stories? I, I don't see what you're talking. I, I don't get it. Yeah, I don't. I, <laughs> what are you talking about? So he, he has this fascination with like these. He has a fascination with legacy, I guess. Yeah, that's interesting. I buy that. And um, um and with how you're remembered after you die or like after your after your time has passed. Yeah, and, and I, I understand and, that. And and like whether and whether his characters have ultimately spent their time well. Yeah. I, <laughs> Do you I, have... No, you say this and I'm just like, all right, I could get into someone like kind of trying to grapple with that for all of their life <laughs> yeah because i like i i get it i i you know I, I do a lot of writing and i do a lot of stuff but I, it's all very like day to day and if i were to like kick over tomorrow <laughs> you know what 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 of that is gonna last and the i don't know 
there's always that part of you that says the answer is not much. Well, you know? and and you think about like, uh, what is, what impact have I made? And and then you think about like, well, did I make an impact on the industry in which I worked, or did I, you know, advance what I, you know, you and I are both in creative fields, as it were. Um, and the the thing that I do spe- specifically, like goes away after anywhere from a week to a month and it, and it doesn't exist anymore you know right like and and it's it's very ephemeral i guess yeah and that's that is one of the things that we all tell each other when we get into the rehearsal room about why it's so magical you know you drink that Kool-Aid but then you you don't have the same thing to look back on right and so you mm-hmm. wonder like oh well then what is the thing that i i am leaving behind and i don't i don't know um, but then you have to like, oh, is it the the easy answer to be like, well, it's the people that you connected with and all that kind of stuff. But I understand that if your your urge, if your the essence of your being is, I want to record my experiences and sh- so that other people may may share them, you know, wondering whether or not there will be anyone to, who wants to share it with you is is a b- yeah. pretty big question. Yeah, right. I mean, and and so there's that there's that question of legacy and there's also there's also a question of like i don't know of like of like missed opportunity i guess like yeah yeah what what music would he have turned out if he had lived or going forward to the gone tomorrow book like what books would he have written if he had not just you know if he'd not locked up under this writer's block for 30 years or whatever like like what I don't know what could have been if if the decisions that these people had made had been different or if things had worked out differently. And that, and that happens to to Wordman in the book too is like he you know Eddie dies, the band goes its separate ways and he spends the best part of the next 20 years just trying not to think about it and then you know their music starts getting big again and it it causes him to like revisit, you know, these past friends and and lovers and like this whole separate part of his life and he wonders you know, if Eddie had died, what would have happened to me? And like, what, where would this have gone? Yeah. And would I be happier or would things be better? Hmm. So it's all, it's, it gets, it gets a little melancholy. And I think that's, that's, um, you know, going back to these common themes that keep cropping up in his work. I think that's a big, that's a big part of it is like characters, characters worry about, how they're spending their time and they worry about, you know, often, often his protagonists are people who are not in their prime anymore. And, you know, maybe they peaked or maybe they're just worrying about the, you know, the fact that they've peaked or maybe they look at, and I know I said earlier, the kids today, and there is, there's a little bit of kids today in this book. Oh, the kids today in this book. (laughs) Like there's a specific (laughs) passage where he's, um, I want to hear it. I want to hear it so bad. All right. Okay, so he's talking about his experience being a being a teacher and talking about how ideally he wanted, you know, he wanted the kids to keep him young and he also wanted to like to teach them and to um to 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 make them more curious about the world around them and that kind of stuff. And and so he says, "What went wrong?" All I can tell you is that as the years passed, the gap between me and my students widened. I thought less and less of the kids who'd inherited my youth. I resented and envied them. 
Maybe it's an occupational hazard, inevitable when you see them marching in every September and out every June, year after year, a bountiful harvest of C's that might as well be F's. Am I putting down the kids? Well, I guess I am. Were we any different? (laughs) Yes, I think we were. Oh, no. Sorry, but I think that things are winding down in America right now. Perhaps I shouldn't complain. Nobody ever said that things would stay the same forever, let alone improve. So let's just leave it at this. A dozen years of seeing what goes in and out of a public high school has made a pacifist out of me. I pray for peace, peace in these kids' prime and in my old age, because if these kids ever get into a war, it'll probably be a wrong war. And worse yet, I bet they lose. Uh, So this is, um, this is, (laughs) this is somebody. Eddie and the Bummers. Yeah, this is this is coming from somebody who's like forty years old and looking at the the kids the kids today, and <laughs> oh no, this is his this is his opinion of them, and I don't I don't know how I don't know how that reflects on Kluga himself and the fact that he's still teaching like today. Like I saw, yeah. him, we went back to our reunion like six months ago or whatever. Like he was there, I talked to him briefly, and. um yeah, I just I don't know. I don't I don't know how much of that is him talking and how much of that is just like his worst fears or something. I think but. I there's something if I recall from some of the either speeches he's given or essays he's written about kind of college culture. Uh it seems to me that his his agita about youth is is kind of generalized, but he has the ability to kind of really enjoy and latch on to individual students. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Um, I've never known him to like outright just dismiss individual people. Whereas it's even in his writing, it sounds like he's willing to just be like, all y'all under 25 suck. Get out. <laughs> I was like, it's, it's almost like... as a challenge. He issues it, you know? Yeah. Um, I, and I, I actually find that I don't, I don't know. As I get a little older myself, like I'm, I t- turned 28 last month, and um, I'm not like, I'm not old. I'm not. I'm not even 30 yet. But I, <laughs> I look at, I don't know, like high school kids or kids who are in college, or even like at us when we were in college. And I think you know maybe were we making the best use of our time all the time? Like were we? No one is. Did, no one see, is. Yeah, yeah. Like I don't disagree with them that kids are kind of dumb and that they do dumb stuff. The thing that I take issue with is that kids in previous eras were somehow better because I don't think that they were like like adults have been worrying about the next generation ruining everything for as long as there have been kids and adults. That is that is true. I th- I think there are basic there may perhaps be basic levels of education and understanding that are falling by the wayside. <laughs> I will looking back on every once in a while I see one of those articles that's like here's a test that sixth graders were taking in 1875 and you're gonna fail it like i, but I see, does that does that is that a reflection on social mores the kids, or is yeah. that a reflection on the stuff that you needed to know That's in 1865 no, 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 that no, you I don't need that. to know anymore and yeah. i actually think our education system is is failing not because kids are worse at standardized testing or at story problems but because we're not teaching them the things they actually need to know to get by in the world today we're teaching them the same stuff that we've been teaching them since world war ii no, or whatever like it's fair. been the same reading writing arithmetic stuff which you know to some level is important but 
you know, kids don't know how to open a bank account. They don't know how to get a loan. They don't know how to buy stock. I don't know. Like, I'm not saying those are the most important things in the world, but welcome. Like, they don't they don't know how to cook anything. Class. Like, come on. Welcome to Andrew's math and cooking class. We're gonna make some burgers and buy some. Here's loans. how you make. Here's how you caramelize an onion, and here's how you write a check. You stupid idiot. Mr. Andrew, Mr. Andrew, how do I put this cheese on the burger right? And also, how do I open a line of credit? You got to put it on while the burger is still cooking so it melts a little bit, but not so much that it melts cheese all Wait, over the place, am I you stupid little idiot. Oh my, um, do I toast oh, the I bun? Do I toast the bun? It's a matter of preference. Oh, Get out man. of my face. Oh, God. <laughs> Live your life. The APR on this burger is 0.6%. <laughs> How's it compounded? Oh, no. Oh, no. You fail. Um, Go back to first grade. What, <laughs> Go back to first grade. Is that how your school would work? Yeah. Everyone would just have to start. It's like shoots and ladders. From the beginning. Yeah. What if, it was, what if, it was, if you fail the wrong class, you go back three grades? But if you. Yeah. <laughs> but you can also climb up three grades if you do a good job. If you make a real good burger. Basically, I should be secretary of education. Yeah. Yeah, maybe you should just be a secretary for someone. I feel like we spent a really tiny amount of this podcast actually talking about the book. Yeah, the, the, the it's is it be I is it because you you felt going like as you're reading this book that you've been there before? Do you think? I mean, there's a little bit of that, but the other part of it is just, it's it's not it's not thematically super complex. Like it's it's um. You know, there are those elements of melancholy and of of wondering what could have been, and those are mm-hmm. interesting. But at, at its heart, and this is something that I realize more and more as I read more of his stuff, is that he writes, you know, he writes fine mystery novels. He okay. writes entertaining, above average, but not mind-blowing mystery novels most of the time. What is entertaining about them? You, I mean, it's, it's like, I mean, going way, way back into our back catalog, it's like the Da Vinci Code thing. Like you do, you are, you get engaged enough that you want to know what happens. He does a good job of, wanna... of setting up a question and then drawing yeah. out the answer. Yeah, and, and right. his, his descriptions of things are interesting enough. And usually, you know, even though there's only that one voice throughout, that voice is engaging enough. Yeah. Especially, you know especially as protagonists are engaging enough that you want to know what happens is just that often or, you know, the destination is not always worth it at the end. But when you're reading the book itself, you're, you're like entertained enough to want. To okay. Keep going. So All right. I'll buy that. It's, it's fine. It's fine work, but it's not, I don't know. Like a lot of the times the, the books and stuff that we read tap into these deeper questions and this, this dabbles in that, but it's not really the point. You know. Yes. Fair enough. I feel. I, I think feel like did, there's a certain. We did element. talk about some of the deeper stuff. But. I feel like there's a certain element, kind of, of all of his work that sounds like he is writing because he needs to write, and it just so happens that he's going to write a novel that he can publish and sell. Does that make sense? Like, kind of. I mean, he, he the people he writes about often have a need to write, or like that's that's just the thing that they do, and that's what they were put on earth to do and that's what they're going to do. And yeah. There you go. Yeah. And I, I just wonder if he's just going to keep going, you know, he's just going to keep on trucking. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you look at his, and unfortunately, it's not really. If you look at his website, which is pfbluegood.com. His books aren't in chronological um, order. Yeah, his books are not in chronological order. Like, a lot of the time, the reissues will be bumped to the top. Yeah. But at least from what I can find, he um, he went through kind of a dry spell, I guess, in the late 80s. Between through... this and Biggest Elvis, right? Um, Ish? Yeah, between between that and Biggest Elvis, and he just wasn't... He wasn't as productive i guess in the 80s and 90s but since the mid 2000s he's turned something out every couple of years i wonder and, if maybe um, he was are, doing more some... traveling travel writing then i wonder if he possibly he might yeah, not i mean I, I don't I, I just don't know about yeah. about what his output was but and, and and you've got some um some okay like some middling books in there like i think gone tomorrow was not amazing final exam was not great um but uh, like Call from Jersey is the one he put out in 2010. I've not read The Master Blaster, which is his most recent book, but um, Call from Jersey was good. Um, you like Call from Jersey? Oh. Master Blaster has been well reviewed in like the New York Times, so you know that's something. Um, okay. And I did enjoy Biggest Elvis. Okay, I think of, of all the books of his that I've read, I like that and um, Alma Mater the best. All right, I was going to ask if if there was a book that you would recommend of his oeuvre. Um, biggest Elvis, if you didn't go to Kenyon, alma mater, if you did go to Kenyon, or if you went to a a um, similar, like, small liberal arts school, I think somebody who didn't have that experience who read alma mater would not really care that much about it. Mm. But, um, All right. But in terms of characterization and um, the sense of place that I'm talking about, I think Biggest Elvis is probably the best one to to approach because it's it's the like i said earlier i think it's it's the furthest removed from the stuff he normally writes about i mean it's still there but kind of took a little bit of a leap of faith and it yeah you're not you're not like living on that campus yeah yeah to the extent that you are in a lot of his other books well if you would uh thank you i don't i'm doing like three different closings right now (laughs) wow we've been talking for a while i think i got a little brain fried uh Thanks uh, for reading that book, Andrew. Thanks. And I thought you were going to thank the listeners for listening. Well, I was going to thank them next. I was going to thank you at home or you on your commute with us in your ears for listening. And if you would like to uh, tell us what you think about Eddie and the Cruisers, if you've read it, uh, or if you want to ask us any other questions about our college professors... <laughs> Uh, you can do that at overduepod at gmail.com. You can also tweet your thoughts about Woody Allen to twitter.com slash overduepod. And you can also post your other favorite uh, semi-autobiographical novels to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash overduepod. Make sure you do not mix those up because if I get a message about Woody Allen on Facebook, I'm not even going to read it. <laughs> Um, you can also go to our website, which is at overduepodcast.com. Up there, we have Amazon links to the books that we have read, the books that we are reading, the books that we will soon be reading. Um, if you, if we talk about a book and you think it sounds interesting, or if you want to read along with us, if you click those links, you buy the books using those links, we get a tiny cut of that, and it helps defray hosting costs and other things. Um, also, up on that website, we have links to our RSS feed, which you can use to subscribe to us in in non-iTunes podcast programs. And we also have iTunes, uh, the, the iTunes thing for iTunes. Yeah. Um, if you 
<laughs> if you click on that, you can subscribe. You can also rate and review us, which helps out um, helps out the podcast and those rankings and helps it become a little more discoverable. So we always I always like reading what people are thinking, and um, that that is a pretty good way to tell us. So cool, Craig. Uh, what are you going to be reading next? I week? think you know? I haven't picked it exactly, but I think I want to tackle a Sherlock Holmes. Okay. I've never read any Sherlock Holmes. Okay. I've seen the show with Benedict Cumberbund and... I saw the first Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes, which oh, I enjoyed. I haven't seen any of those. I did. We listened to a Study in Scarlet on audiobook. That's what made me think about once. it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how how long did that take? A while. <laughs> All right. You could probably read it in a week if you wanted to, if you set your mind to no, it. No, I was, I was asking about the audiobook. Um, it it took most of it took like three hours four hours i don't know all right it took a while okay. okay well we'll see that's what I'll, okay. I'll i'll let you know okay well whether we uh whether we, whether craig reads sherlock Holmes or not um you can hear us again next week and try to be happy <laughs> good ending that was, that was an episode